So there's that old saying, many of you probably have heard, right? You can't see the forest for the trees. It's an expression that we use when someone, uh, I think it's true of myself with my ADHD, have a tendency to do this. You get fixated on a certain aspect of a situation uh, that you miss the bigger picture of what's going on. You know, an individual might be acknowledging a part of the whole, but lose sight of the broader context. Now, I think this is often true when we consider our faith. Many Christians are so busy with different elements, and even elements of faith, that they miss the bigger picture of what God is trying to do in and through them in their faith. Now, for some, this might be distractibility. It's entertainment, passing on... passing on intimacy with God for things like Netflix, Facebook, you know, getting those dopamine hits, Amazon shopping, whatever you you name it. But I think too often many Christians are caught up in a lot of doing for their faith, that they miss out on believing. We go to church, we say our prayers, we read our Bible, but unless those actions are coupled with a robust belief, a robust faith in God, I think they're going to miss the mark. This week I was reading through my devotional, which is currently in the book of Acts. And um, one of the, the um, passages that I read was Acts chapter 12. Now we talked about this back in the spring when we were going through Acts, but I, I think it highlights, I think it's important to highlight and go back on it. So in Acts chapter 12, Herod is, uh, he has had James killed, and Peter has been imprisoned. Herod saw that it pleased the crowd to kill James, so Peter's kind of next on the chopping block. And the church in Jerusalem gathers together to pray for Peter's deliverance. And so what happens as a result of these prayers is an angel appears with Peter in the prison, and Peter and that angel kind of walk together just out of prison. Doors just open before them. People are blinded. They don't know what's going on. Peter actually initially thinks that this is just a dream until they're outside of the prison and then the angel departs and it says, the Bible says that he came to himself. He realized like, oh my gosh, this is real. And so where does he go? He goes to the house of John Mark, the the guy who wrote the gospel of Mark. And that's where the church is is currently praying for his deliverance. So, So Peter goes and he knocks on the door and a serving girl, her name's Rhoda, answers the door. She doesn't open it, but she, she asks, you know, who's there? Peter explains his presence. She recognizes his voice, and jubilantly, she runs to the gathered believers. Peter's outside, and you know what their response was? They told the girl, they said, you're out of your mind. These passionate followers of Jesus were so caught up in doing, right? They were praying, fervently praying for Peter's deliverance, but they missed the mark. When God answered their prayer, there was a lack of faith to them. When Peter came knocking at the door, they were surprised by what God had done for them. Last week, we talked about repentance as this catalyst for seeking transformation in our lives. But I ask you, as we desire to see this change, as we desire to see God take us more and more from the people that He found us to and transform us into the image of Jesus, are we doing too much and believing too little? Right? The Christian life is first and foremost about believing and only secondly about doing. Here's just an example of this, a little proof text, but I think it applies nonetheless. John chapter 6, right? Jesus had just fed thousands of people, 
and this crowd, quite a crowd, had developed around them. And the crowd asked him a question, and I think this question is relevant for us today. He said, they said, what must we be doing to do the works of God? Okay. They want to know what they can do to please God. What are the steps necessary to make sure that they're on this right path with God? It's a legitimate question, and I think we should cue ourselves into how Jesus responds. Here's what Jesus says. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in he whom he has sent, and him who he has sent. That's kind of funny language. The work of God, Jesus is saying, is to believe in me. Right? That's it. The work of God is not really a work at all, at least not the way that we normally understand that language. It's not something you need to strive after. It's not a doing, but it's a believing. Again, last week we talked about repentance, turning away from our sins and inviting God slowly and incrementally to chip away those hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. And so this week I want to take it one step further, and I want us to search deeper into the core to see what is it that prevents us from effectively embracing that faith, right? Embracing that thing that has the ability to transform us, right? Remember, this week is not about doing, but is about believing. Keep that in mind as we launch in. All right, I've shown this image a bunch of times. You might be tired of it, but I'm going to keep showing it to you because I think it's, it's quite profound. So since the first message in this series, we've acknowledged that part of growing in that gospel, making that cross loom larger in our lives, is a growing awareness of our sin. When we think about areas of sin in our lives, there's any number of things that might come to mind for you, right? You might think about lying to a friend in order to, 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 to keep from hurting their feelings. You might gossip about your coworker. You get really frustrated in the car, I don't know if this speaks to anyone, get really frustrated in the car to the point that you use one of your fingers to remind them of which direction heaven is. Thanks, Sarah. I try to be funny. I'm not funny. It's okay. You know, there are also times where perhaps you've, you've shortchanged God, right? Places where he's put on your heart to give to him that you haven't necessarily set aside in your budget, right? These are all activities that the Bible would consider sin. But when we consider sin in our lives, what we're dealing with here, I, I would argue, is what I'm going to call surface sins, that they're symptoms of something deeper going on inside of us. Let me try to give you a little anecdote to see if it helps open this up. Let's say that, you, you know, you, you trip and fall. You get kind of a, you know, nasty scrape on your leg. You don't think anything of it. You're like, it'll just heal. It's fine. I'm tough. But in a few days' time, the, the skin around your leg has gotten swollen and it has begun to hurt. You develop a fever. You find that you're just so doggone tired all the time. Now, you could, you could work to treat all of those symptoms. You could wrap the leg to keep anything from getting inside that cut. You could take ibuprofen for your fever. You could go to bed an extra hour earlier to try to you know, have more energy throughout the day. But each of those things would only be treating the symptoms of what's going on. Because what's happened is below the surface is that original wound that left untreated has now become infected and has went, gone septic. Right? Just fighting off the symptoms is not going to alleviate the pain and provide relief. 
right, you need to visit your doctor. You need to get some oral antibiotics. You need to flush out and sterilize that wound. Right? Without seeking any medical advice, those symptoms are just going to come right back after you've treated them. I think the same thing is often true of our sin. Right? When we recognize and seek change from our sins, usually what we treat are the surface sins. We treat the symptoms, but we need to look down deeper. Right? What is the part of our soul that has been infected and needs the purifying grace of God to bring holistic healing to us? And so this morning, I want to to invite us to consider these deeper idols, these things that we elevate to divine status in our lives, right, above God's presence. And again, this is about believing. What what do we need to change in our thinking, in our faith, to, to see these idols not have a hold on us anymore? From the very beginning of, of God's law, it was clear that idolatry was bad, right? Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6, details the first two of the Ten Commandments. It says in in chapter 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these things, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Rule number one, he says, You shall have no other gods before me. And then rule number two, right on the heels of that, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, and he kind of keeps talking about, you know, visiting iniquity for a few generations, but for those that love him for thousands of generations. The Ten Commandments. I think we would argue, we would understand that that is a good standard that we want to live by. Now, we don't, we don't any longer bow down to and worship carved images or statues like they would have in ancient Israel. Right, in that context, they called them idols. But I would argue we continue to fall prey to idolatry. We, we put things that are not God in the pedestal of our lives and honor them. I don't know if you can read this. But the great reformer, John Calvin, he famously said this. He said, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is from his mother's womb and experts at inventing idols. Our natural inclination is to create pathways of false, quote-unquote, gods, which we look to for our, our identity and worth. Another great reformer, Martin Luther, said something similar when he said that all sin, he argued, is a violation of the first commandment. When when we create something that is not God to provide our identity, we're failing to trust and worship God alone. But the question becomes, like, how do we identify these things in our lives? What are the idols that we worship other than God? Put another way, what are the things that I love, that I trust, that I fear? Because I think all of those things can be motives for elevating something that was created above the Creator. I'm, getting a, I'm going to go a little PG-13 again this week. I won't talk about this for a while again. But last week I had shared in my message uh, of my past struggle with pornography. My experience at that time in college, I was involved in a Christian community that acknowledged that it was wrong. But in response to the sin in my life, and I don't know if maybe there's a sin that you can think of that this has been your case. 
I was taught to establish boundaries to make it more difficult to fall into that sin. I was taught to have friendships who would ask me about my sin. I was taught to showcase more self-control in my life. Now, all of those things are worthwhile, but I'd argue that each of them just dealt with the surface sin. It was dealing with the symptoms. I think there was more that God needed to heal below the surface in my life. Now, why was I chasing it? When I started to get at that deeper heart idol, I realized that what largely drew me to the allure of, you know, these websites, it was, was acceptance, was what I wanted. Right? I was struggling with my own insecurities. I'm not good enough. People aren't going to think that I'm attractive. I'm not suave. I'm unloved. I'm alone. Now, can you understand why something like this had such a hold on me, right? You have this kind of highly manufactured but yet beautiful woman who I see through a screen who appears to like me for me. Now, forget the fact that it was completely synthetic. Any experience that I had was fake. But that pressed into something that seemed to alleviate some of the deepest struggles that I was dealing with. My, my kind of internet porn compulsion was not ultimately the problem. It was a symptom of a deeper problem of my own insecurities for, and craving for acceptance and value. Last week, I also shared about my frustration with my kids, right? When a cup of lemonade spills and I freak out, right? That I'm really, am I really mad about the spill? Or is there something else underlying that anger? Ultimately, I believe, and this is something that I, I've been working through for the past couple of years, much more so. That the deeper sin that I'm working through is my need for control. In order for life to go smoothly, I falsely believe I need to be in control of the situation that makes me very inflexible. And as Luther said, it is arguably a violation of that first commandment. I'm not trusting God with the bumps and bruises of life. I'm trusting in my own power, right? In order to maintain the status quo, I need to be in control. That's what I'm falsely believing. That's idolatry. I don't know. I hope you're starting to, some of this is starting to click for you. We ought to be repenting of those surface sins, right? We don't want to rationalize them away. But if we stop there, I think we miss out on the deeper work of transformation that God wants to do in us. If you keep taking the pain medication, if you keep putting spiritual band-aids on the sin that you're immediately aware of, it's not going to cultivate that change in your heart. You need the Holy Spirit of God to illuminate you, to flush out that deeper recessed heart idols that are the cause of those surface sins that you're seeing day in and day out. This is important in our spiritual development, right? Because we have these idols that hinder our pursuit of God. They keep us from adequately loving our neighbor or our kids. Author Rosaria Butterfield said this about idolatry. She said, idolatry is dangerous as well as delusional. It miscues our worship, affection, identity, and community. She said, and it is easy, cheap and easy. Who wouldn't prefer embracing a lover you can touch over a God you cannot? The allure, she says, of idolatry, that's the end of her quote. I'm just restating what she said now. The allure of idolatry is that it is right within our grasp. 
We exchange a relationship with the invisible and out-of-our-control God with tangible things that we think we have power over. So how do we begin to identify these deeper heart idols? So the gospel-centered life, which is, is a content, it's curriculum that we've been basing this series off of. We're also studying that in our Tuesday night small groups. And they provide a list of potential heart idols. It's not an exhaustive list, but I think it's a good start at identifying some of the root causes of that sin that you're just so sick and tired of dealing with. I know there are so many times in my life where I felt helpless. I can't seem to kick this because I I wasn't looking down a little bit deeper. Now, many of the things that I'm going to say aren't ultimately bad things to want. It's not like the seven deadly sins or anything, but they are good things that have been disordered. Instead of trusting God first for our worth and identity, we allow these things to be elevated to His position. And there, as a result, they exert significant control over our lives. See if any of them resonate with you. Now, just as a, as a side note, um, the case study that they use, I'm going to carry forward with it. Um, and, and we're going to look at some of these idols, these different heart idols, through the lens of gossip. It's just what they use, and so just for consistency's sake, I'm going to keep it there. Right? But what I want you to see is that gossip is not monolithic. Different people might participate or engage in gossip, but stemming from different root issues. And that means that there isn't a formula for dealing with gossip. There's not a formula for dealing with anger. There's not a formula for dealing fill-in-the-blank of that surface sin, because the underlying issues need to be treated differently. All right, let's start with the idol of approval. We use gossip. Again, these are just examples of how if this might be the idol that is, that is um, kind of controlling you, if you will, guiding you. We use gossip as a tool to get credibility with those around us. We use it so that people will like us, will accept us. The idol of control. Gossip is a way that we can control or manipulate others. When we gossip, it gives us the power to get what we want in the end. The idol of reputation. We want to feel important. So we have a proclivity to tear others down. I'm sure some of you can probably relate to that, right? This is like the social order. I remember this is what it was like. I mean, I was going to say high school, but I feel it's all of life. We see someone who is a notch above us, and so we want to tear them down, thinking that life is a zero-sum game, and others might think better of us if we can knock them down a few pegs. The idol of success. Someone has succeeded in ways that I haven't, and in my jealousy, I speak disparagingly about them. The idol of security. When we gossip, we appear to be coming from a place of strength, which masks our insecurity and helplessness that we feel inside. Idol of pleasure. Much like success, someone else is enjoying life, and I am not, so I tear them down. I feel like this is a lot of my interactions on Facebook. The idol of knowledge. I need to be the smartest person in the room, and so gossiping is a way to show that I know more. Idol of recognition, kind of like acceptance, talking about others gets people to notice me. The idol of respect. Again, I said these aren't exhaustive. This person disrespected me, and so I'm going to respond in kind by sharing something unsavory about them. I think the idol of respect is often where I have found that we find much of our passive-aggressive tendencies to come from, when we feel spurned or disrespected that we need to respond in kind. 
each of these idols is promoting in us a false gospel. When we are dominated by them, we erroneously think that our value is based upon how well we stack up in whatever area of life it seems to be a a stumbling block for us. But these are idols. They are not God, and they're poor substitutes for God. Each and every idol in our life is going to let us down. Some of you know that I have a man crush on Andy Crouch. He's an author. He, he used to be an editor for Christianity Today. Uh, Andy wrote a book called Playing God, which was a phenomenal book about redeeming the gift of power. But he has a chapter on idolatry, and he says this. He says, all idols begin by offering great things at a very small price. All idols then fail more and more consistently to deliver on their original promises while ratcheting up their demands, which initially seemed so reasonable for worship and sacrifice. In the end, they fail us completely, even as they make categorical demands. Idols ask for more and more while giving less and less until eventually they demand everything and give nothing. I know folks in this community who have dealt with various types of addiction, and I think that is one of the places where you can see that most fully. It gives the allure, the promise of life, demands very little, but very quickly it becomes imbalanced and demands just about everything for that relief. So again, this is kind of trying to think through what might be some of those deeper levels. So where do we go from here? Now, we've been building to this point in the gospel-centered life. This is the fifth week we've been talking about it. And so you might, as, as you might expect, the remedy for this comes from believing the gospel, right? We spent several weeks understanding the depth of God's overwhelming love for us. That's where we've got to start. Even though we were unworthy, God loved us. Even as that gap in that cross chart continues to expand, God loves us through Jesus. And so the starting point is to acknowledge God's favor in us through Jesus Christ. Because when we allow these gods to take priority and shape who we are, we're less likely. When we, sorry, I, I, I got confused in my notes. When we allow that love of God to take priority in our life, we're less likely to give that power to those idols, those false gods. For example, if I am rooted in God's acceptance of me, I am less likely to be untethered by what others think of me. If I trust that God truly loves me and is working on my life for good, I'll be less, it'll be less necessary for me to grab the horns of life and maintain control. If we feel God's respect, we'll be less likely to react against others when we're offended. And more like Jesus, who turned the other cheek. We can let that Facebook comment thread slide and not feel the need to get into it and you know, make sure that everybody knows that we're right. A lot of us, I mean, this is like, a lot of this stuff is just me preaching to myself. But so often I have the need to be right. I need to be right because it justifies me in my own eyes. Why can't I let it go? Even if I am right, why do people need to know that I'm right? When we find our ultimate pleasure in Jesus Christ, we are less less fixated by these distractions that pull us away from God. The gospel, I would argue, provides the blueprint blueprint for joy and satisfaction in life. Yes, the gospel does provide hope, promise for eternal life, but Jesus also said the reason that he came was so that we we might have life and have it abundantly. 
that we would perceive the kingdom of God in our midst here and now, not just that kingdom that is to come, but the kingdom that has been initiated with Jesus, that we would see it, that we would lean into it and experience it. And I believe that God wants to see the, see the, the shackles of our sin broken so that we might live life more fully, more joyously in Him, more abundantly in His grace. Back to that Andy Crouch quote, right? These idols start off small, asking for nothing, seemingly delivering the world to us, but in the end, they they demand all we have. And I believe that God wants more for us than that. Let's try to change gears here a little bit and go to application. What do we do with this information? How do I get released from these idols? Now, there is no formula. There's no step-by-step directions, although arguably I'm going to give you four steps. But it's not like you just got to do this, do the work, and then all of a sudden, you know, your problems will disappear. It doesn't guarantee results. But I do want to share four R's with you this morning. And I think these four movements will provide a sequence that opens us up, gives us the opportunity to invite God into our lives to do some work, to give us that freedom. So let's see. Let's start with number one. Reveal. This is what we talked about last week. That's what we talked about so far this week. Identify those surface sins in your lives, the ones that you want to see deliverance from. That nagging addiction, your anger at the people that you love, your fixation on your phone. See the behaviors that you want to change. Reveal them. But from there, begin to analyze what deeper motivations, what deeper heart idols are behind them. Right, go through that list I read. It's in the Gospel-Centered Life. Come to small group. I'll give you a copy for free. See what resonates. Remember that two different people can have the same surface sin, but come from completely different areas, completely different underlying motivations for them. And so this is where self-inspection, and this is something that I know in my own life is really hard. I don't know about you as well, right? I, I don't know if it's my ADHD or what, but like, Solitude and silence before God feels like death to me sometimes. I, I just, I've talked before about boredom, right? Boredom is one of those things, like, we don't know how to be bored anymore, and so we just kind of find ways to get those dopamine fixes, and I think that's that, I don't have my phone in my pocket, it's over there, but, right, those glowing rectangles just distract us from really being introspective, being patient with ourselves to see what those, those deep things are. But take time before God. Ask His Holy Spirit to illuminate in you what's going on in that heart of yours. Next would be repent. And this is what we discussed last week. Taking stock of our sin and repenting, literally turning away from it and turning back to God, right? And this is where we invite God into our heart to break that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Three, receive. Receive the gospel. Remember I said this morning is more about believing than doing. Believe that Jesus has victory over that idol. Worship Jesus for his victory over that idol. Maybe we should call it like, you know, say receive and believe, right? Believe that God is your active advocate, right? Live as if the things that we sing on a Sunday morning, that we believe them to actually be true, Right? Think of the person of Jesus and the places in Scripture where he has shown his victory in those areas. Where has he overcome that what you're struggling with right now? 
Hebrews chapter 4 reminds us that Jesus has experienced the full breadth of human emotion and experience. The only difference is that he, he was without sin. Jesus knows what we go through. He has experienced what we currently experienced. He's paved the way for us in his perfect life. We have an advocate who knows precisely what we are enduring, and he's showcased with us that he is for us and he's not against us. Receive the gospel. And then lastly, remember, God has not left us ill-equipped. He has provided his word, which is chock full of passages that speak to God's faithfulness. What are the specific gospel promises that you can rely on in order to help remember and believe the gospel? This is yet another reason that I think it's just so important for us to be people of the word, to be reading. Because I believe, I've had this experience in my life that the Holy Spirit in times of crisis and times of difficulty has brought verses to mind that I have read or that I've thought about, affixed to memory. But I think the Holy Spirit often works with the raw material that we put within there. Not not that the Holy Spirit can't give you confidence, can't give you grace if you never read the Bible, but I think the Bible just, it it just, uh, it's like, you know, I, I don't know, think about neurochemistry, right? It just is increasing those synapses for God to work through, to bring to heart the truth of what, what is true in life, what he wants to do for us in life, instead of believing so much of, of the lies that are out there, that we're not good enough. God has said otherwise. God's promises to us are always yes in Jesus. Everything that we're going through, God has already defeated on the cross, and sometimes we need to remember, we need that reminder that that is true. You know, I wish I could just, like, give you four steps that you could just do and all that sin would go away. But I think if anyone could do that, they, they would have, um, they'd probably be able to make a lot of money off that because there isn't a formula. But I think this rhythm does open us up. If we, if we kind of step and walk through this, it gives us the opportunity to find freedom from the sin and the vices that drag us down. The things that make us feel distant from God or cause pain in our lives or the lives of others. Reveal, repent, receive, and remember. God loves you, and I, He wants you to experience abundant life here and now. So may we begin to find the places where we're falling, falling short, and we can trust in His love and gospel to give us freedom from the things that are binding us. So much of our own life is striving for value and acceptance and worth. But let the good news of God, the good news of God's lavish grace and radical love permeate every square inch of your soul. May it provide freedom and increase our affection to follow that first commandment, right? To love God with everything we've got. Now, before I pray, I just, I, um, the the closing song that we're going to sing today is called Mercy. I really like this song, Um, and the chorus in particular, I hope can be a reminder for us of the good news of God's love, because it says, let me think if I can remember it, I can't remember, but it says, I I know the end, it says, mercy triumphs over judgment, and and I think that is so, so, uh, uh, just such an apt way to phrase that, an elegant way to say that, 
Because too often in our lives, God's posture towards us is one of judgment, where we're thinking about all these sins that we've done. May we remember instead that God's posture towards us, His disposition towards us, is mercy, is love, not one of judgment. So I hope that this can be just a a reflective uh, opportunity, time of worship as we sit in God's love. Let me pray. Lord, as the last two weeks we've been considering what do we do, how do we handle the sin in our lives? May we time and time again come back to the good news of your gospel, that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven, that there is now no condemnation in those of us that are in Jesus, even in the places that we continue to to slip up places that we try to walk through life with our shoes tied together and we just keep tripping. Lord, help us identify what those surface sins are, but also identify for us what are those deeper gospel promises we need to believe, knowing that we have acceptance in you, knowing that we have love in you, knowing that there is nothing more pleasurable on this earth than you, knowing that you are in control and working things for our good, even even if life is hard. May we continue to believe, not just do the good works of the gospel, but believe that you have gone before us. And may that reorient our thinking to trust you more and more and see victory more and more over the sin in our lives. Lord, send your Holy Spirit because we are helpless without it. In Jesus' name, amen.